This is Teaching While White. I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi. As our listeners know, Teaching While White is our project to help educators be consciously, intentionally anti-racist in the classroom. Because white is not a blank slate. It's a set of assumptions that is the baseline from which everything in our society gets judged. White is what passes for normal. Our goal is to have conversations about those assumptions, what they are, how they impact our students, and how we can confront our own bias to promote racial literacy. We're hardly alone in doing this work. Elena Aguilar is a leading thinker, writer, teacher, and coach in the field. Aguilar has written six books on equity, inclusion, and coaching. She's also the founder and president of Bright Morning Consulting. I sat down with Elena to talk about her work as a coach and started by asking how she sees whiteness operating in coaching relationships. Did she see any patterns? So I appreciate the invitation to name how white supremacy shows up in in many ways, whether that's in the work that I do as a presenter or a coach or a writer. First of all, there's a a skill to acquire, which is to recognize when it's showing up because so often it shows up, but we don't see it. And so one of the metaphors that I appreciate for how we can think about racism or white supremacy perhaps is that it's like smog in the air or like a toxin that's in our waters and in our soil. And so a lot of times we don't know when we're ingesting it. And then maybe sometimes we get some kind of feedback or report and um, and we find out, oh, we've actually taken a lot of this in. Um, but that's really like the precursor to the strategy is learning to recognize when it shows up. It's been a long journey for me. Uh, Um, acquiring strategies, practicing them, finding out which ones really work for me. When I first started coaching, I was a really struggling coach. I didn't get any training or support. I went from a school that I had helped found, which had a really healthy staff community, where we had a very explicit commitment to equity. I went from there to a school that was toxic, where there was intense resistance to exploring issues of equity. And as I said, I had no training as a coach. I had very little direction about what I was supposed to be doing. And I didn't at that point have a lot of awareness about how I was experiencing that school or the teachers that I was working with. I walked around angry a lot of the time. I was not, when I say I was not a good coach, I I didn't like the teachers I coached. I didn't want to coach them. I thought they were awful. I thought that um, they got up every morning committed to making the lives of black and brown children miserable. And these were teachers who were white and black and brown. And I was very confused and disoriented. And I was very angry a lot of the time. And I was not an effective coach. One of the things that took me really some years to recognize was that when I was working in that school, I was having a lot of my own emotional. trauma and fears 
as it relates to being a person of color in a school, in a system, and as it relates to being the mother of a Black boy, a lot of those fears and traumas were activated in me. So I was going into classroom after classroom where Black boys were being kicked out, sent to the office, sat in timeout chairs. And I would literally, like my heart would start pounding and my palms would sweat, my throat would constrict. And it took me years to actually make the connection between, oh, I'm actually also terrified by what might be happening to my son in school right now. So there was a lot of like awareness building that I just needed to do. And then learning the strategies for, um, for responding to what was coming up for me. So I wanted to be a coach. Uh, one of the things that I want to emphasize is that the way that we engage and respond needs to be contextualized within our role and our relationship with the people we're working with. So my response to the teachers I was coaching was different than the response I might have to a friend or family or, or neighbor who was treating young people in ways they shouldn't be treated because of their race or gender ethnicity. There's a difference between how I respond to someone I'm coaching and how I respond to someone I'm not coaching. My relationship with someone I'm coaching defines how I respond because within that relationship, there's an agreement. And this is where I said, there's like a little detour here, which is, okay, so what is coaching? What is a coach? And I don't need to go into that unless you want me to, but that's the, that it's that agreement that defines how I respond to people I'm coaching. So as a coach with teachers that I came to realize I was actually committed to supporting and I wanted to help, I wanted to help them learn and grow. As a coach, my response needed to shift from being angry and from uh, needed to shift from a place where my emotional responses were hijacking my coaching brain. Now, my emotional responses were valid. They deserved attention. They deserved processing. And I gave them that, but they needed to move to the side, not behind me, not later, but to the side, because I also had a commitment to being a coach. Was there ever a time where then you might talk to the person that you're coaching about what happened? Do you have, you know, are there times where you might name it like, Ooh, I think there was an issue of racial bias that got in the middle of what was happening here. Or I think, you know, I think white supremacy was showing up. Would you ever, did you ever name it as explicitly as that? Definitely. And there's a difference that I want to just call out between my emotions and my response and the issues. And so I'm not going to come to a teacher and say, you know, I, I, when you screamed at that child, it really brought back memories of a teacher screaming at me when I was a child. And I'm not going to bring myself into it, but naming there's some white supremacy or racism or bias here at play. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's, that's something that a coach needs to learn how to do skillfully. And there's a lot to say about how to do that, but it is in my mind, a coach's responsibility. It's an educator's responsibility because if we are working 
in a school or an organization or even with a personal vision or commitment to justice and liberation, to equity, then it's our responsibility to say something. It's also our responsibility to learn how to say it skillfully because so many people have that kind of a commitment, but haven't acquired the skills. And again, I keep saying skills because they are skills to, to do it effectively so that the other person doesn't shut down or feel attacked. Then the conversation ends. Here on the podcast, we talk a lot about the skills and knowledge teachers need to develop through the coaching process. I asked Elena for some examples from her training experience that illustrate some of those skills in action. Well, this is a, a story that's in Coaching for Equity, which is my book that came out in 2020. And in it, I tell a story about a young woman whom I coached who, well, I start off the chapter saying, Stephanie cried so much, I thought she would dehydrate. And I really, that was serious. Like she cried so much. And she had moved to Oakland, California from near St. Louis, Missouri. She talked about wanting to teach at-risk children. She talked about what she moved to Oakland because her best friend from college was working in San Francisco. She, so I was dubious about her motivations. She talked about like her Hispanic children. She used that word Hispanic. She talked about, she really blatantly just talked about how she wanted to save her students and how they were like her, her poor kids. And, um, and in that first conversation, I heard all of this and there were parts of me that felt really triggered and irritated and annoyed and kind of disgusted and distrusting. There were parts of me that felt that. And then there were other parts of me that were curious and that were listening for her strengths and her commitment and what there was sort of to build on. And so that first conversation went in the direction of her strengths and her, and what there was for us to build on who she wanted to be as a teacher. And in that conversation, sort of lightly, I also suggested, hey, you know, let's consider some other terms to use instead of at risk. Because that's a term that and I gave her a little bit of a, a very brief, light lesson about terminology, and I gave her some alternatives. And so, and I think that was really um, important for me to to name, in the sense that I didn't make a really big deal about it. I gave her some options. I didn't just say, you know, you can't say at risk kids; that's problematic. I said, you know try using this term or this one. And so, you know, I didn't say, and I didn't say like, you know, that's racist. Um, You're a white woman, you're coming here, you're teaching all black and brown kids. So you don't know anything about them. You're making these assumptions. She talked about in that same conversation, she had talked about how she felt sorry for her kids, that so many of them didn't have fathers. They were kind of just like orphans. Um, And so there was, there were a lot of ways in which I was really triggered and And I could also, in that moment again, sort of see, okay, so I'm getting triggered. Yep, this is bringing up some of my own stuff. 
And then I'd say to myself, okay, I'm going to come back to that later and I'll tend to my own emotions later. And right here, right now, I want to be with this teacher. And I want to, right now, my focus is on building relationship with her because there is no way we're going to get anywhere unless we have a relationship. That's just the fact of being a human being. Researcher Dr. Mamta Akapati wrote an article entitled When White Women Cry How White Women's Tears Oppress Women of Color. It describes what can happen when white women become overwhelmed by emotion during conversations about race and use their tears as a means to focus on how hurt they are, as opposed to addressing the injury of racism. I asked Elena Aguilar how she frames the role of emotions in coaching for racial equity. We're human beings and human beings have emotions and we're going to have a lot of emotions and we're going to have strong emotions about things like racism and white supremacy. And if we're not having strong emotions, then there's something wrong. There's no way we should be able to talk about the current state of education or the country or world or the last hundreds of years without having strong emotions. So I would say let's start with that assumption. We are going to have emotions. People are going to experience emotions. They're going to express emotions. And that can be healthy. I mean, more than be healthy, I would say it can be a way for us to connect, to process, to grieve, to heal, to transform. Emotions can be energizing. They can be fuel. They can feel good. They can be cathartic. So we've we've had so many notions about emotions that come from patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy that demonize them, that suggest that we should suppress and repress them, leave them outside of work. They have nothing you know, if you are grown and you cry, you're childish. If you are a man and you cry, you're weak. So I find that, unfortunately, some of those distorted and dangerous beliefs about emotions, maligned beliefs about emotions, have trickled into some of the work that folks do in the anti-racism efforts in schools and out, out outside of schools. And some of that has coalesced around this demonization, that's a strong word and I'm going to use it, of white women and their tears. And I'm actually, I feel like I want to lead a campaign that says like, let white women cry, um, but give them space and structure So let me just jump in before, you know, I, I want to be really clear about something, which is white women have a responsibility. All of us have a responsibility to take around how we express emotion and where and with whom and what we expect from others when we express emotion. And when we talk about and look specifically at 
the way the white women's tears have oppressed women of color, I don't think there's been enough focus or attention given to the context, the organization, the invisible structures that allow that to happen, the leader who's in the room. I vividly remember something maybe like eight years ago, being in a leadership team meeting. I was there as a coach or a consultant. This was a leadership team meeting where the team leader was a woman of color and the team itself was pretty diverse. And the team leader was, they were doing some visioning work, talking about the goals for the year. One of the department heads shared goals that she had established. And she was a black woman. And another teammate who was sort of her peer started crying, got really upset, started saying things like, I feel like you don't appreciate the work I do. I feel like you're not seeing my work. Within this team, all attention shifted onto the white woman who was crying. There was lots of going to get tissues, consoling her, giving her water. What does she need right now? Someone else said something about, I think we're violating our community agreements. And indirectly, there was a lot of criticism of the Black woman for what she had shared. All the attention shifted. And I was watching this dynamic and feeling really angry at this white woman for hijacking the conversation. And then I started thinking about, wait a minute, what is the leader of this team doing? Why isn't she stepping in, saying something? And I have replayed that so many times in my head. What could have happened differently? And I've seen different things happen in team meetings like that. What could have happened differently was that the team leader who in that team had the most positional authority. Now we can unpack this a little bit more if the dynamics were different, but that team leader could have said, I'll just call her Stephanie. Stephanie, I can see and I can hear that you're really upset. We're going to continue to hear the plans that this other person has created and laid out. And you and I, let's check in after the meeting. And she could have passed her some tissues and all attention could have shifted back to the Black woman who was trying to talk about the goals for the year. White women can learn how to cry in ways that don't hijack the conversation, we can provide scaffolding, we can provide structure, we can have opportunities for tears. We, we don't need to, the message that they should be suppressed or they don't need to exist, I think has been amplified. And also I want us to look at leaders and context and say, if a white woman's tears are able to hijack a team meeting, that team is weak. That organizational context is weak. It needs to be attended to. And so let's be thoughtful about how we assign responsibility and blame.
Elena says part of her responsibility as a coach and teacher is to provide the educational scaffolding her trainees need to grow and develop. And so a white woman who's crying a lot, like that's fine. She's just, that's where she's at in her stage of development. And so if we want her to grow and develop and acquire more skillful ways to engage with the strong emotions that are coming up, to respond to the feedback she's getting, to be able to take a hard look at her own practice as a teacher or whatever, then how do we scaffold? Like we can either say, you know, it's like as if we saw a toddler struggling to walk and just like said like, well, they'll figure it out and take away any of the props for them to use to sort of get themselves up into a standing position first. And the encouragement, like, you know, what can we do so that if we are a coach, again, I want to name that uh, the responsibility that exists between a coach and someone um, that you're a coachee or a client, it, you know, there's some, there's, a, there's nuance to unpack here that I don't want to lose. But if the responsibility is I'm your coach and Stephanie, you are crying all the time and your tears are preventing us from ever getting into a real meaningful conversation about your practice, which is racist and how you might shift that then it's my, I take this as my responsibility. I'm happy to take this as my responsibility to create scaffold and gradually lead her through this process so that we can get to the conversations we need to get to. But if I just get angry at her and mock her and humiliate her, you know, it may be cathartic for me as a person of color, as someone who's tired of people not being able to take a hard look at their realities. Yeah, it might be cathartic and it's going to alienate her. So in building those relationships, getting connected, building that trust, what are some of the transformations that you've seen um, that you've seen in your white coaches? Often when I talk about this, it raises some anxiety in folks. And those are people of color and white people who are committed to anti-racist practice when they say, but it's going to take so long to, to build relationships. And kids are suffering today. These changes needed to have happened decades ago, hundreds of years. Yes, absolutely. I'm with you. Okay. It's going to take so long. So often what I say to them is, is what you're doing now in terms of your coaching practices or your leadership practices, is that working? Are you seeing the changes in the teachers and the folks that you're coaching or supervising? Are you seeing the changes that you want to see? Is it, does it work for you to call them out? Does it work for you to say you have to stop crying? Does it work to say, hey, look, I got to interrupt you right there because what you just said was racist. That was white supremacy. Does that work? Are you seeing the results you want to see? And I so often, if not really always get a response of like, no, it's not working. They become more resistant. Or maybe they start seeming compliant, but I know that they're not because I'm still getting the parent complaints. So here's the thing. We have also distorted notions about time. We have these ideas that relationships take so long to build, that trust takes so long. 
And I'd actually say we have that notion, that's a, a notion that we've come to through the very systems of oppression that we are trying to dismantle. I've had experiences more than I can count where I can build deep trust with people within 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, the kind of trust that actually allows us to get into the conversations we need to be having. Now, that's something that like, I can say, I can make that claim, but I know so many people are like, yeah, really? Uh, in a lot of the workshops I do, in almost all of them, I demonstrate coaching conversations and And that's something I do. And I can show people, look, it's not magic. It's actually a skill set. It's a skill set and a disposition that are founded on or emerge from a set of principles. And the coaching model that I've developed, transformational coaching, is, is based on, emerges from these five principles that are critical to being successful to coach for equity and to have those conversations with white women who don't stop crying. One of those is compassion, one of the principles. And what that means in that moment in a coaching relationship is that I have to stay open, compassionate, I have to stay in a place of caring, of unconditional regard for the person I'm coaching, even when she says stuff that's really hard to hear. Even when she's talking about how she wants to save all of her black and brown kids, and if their families just worked harder, or if their dads were in the picture, I have to stay open and compassionate. That's the way that the skills work, and that's the way I build trust quickly. Like for me to be truly compassionate, I have to be able to look at Stephanie and say, okay, she is a product of socialization. Here she is. She was 22 years old coming from the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. She'd never lived in a diverse community. She'd never worked with folks who looked like the kids that she was working with. She had breathed in all those toxins that I have also Humility is really helpful in doing this. I have held racist, white supremacist ideas in my mind. I still do sometimes. I still recognize, oh, look at that. There it is. There's one of those racist ideas that I didn't even know I had breathed in that now I am operating from. Oh, shit. Okay. Time for some learning, Elena. Like that's still like, come on, all of us, we've been, I mean, our, the, the, the air and the soil and the water has been toxic for 600 years. Who are we? What to think that we can just uh, uh, expel it all from our mind and our body and our hearts. And so some compassion includes, there's sort of a blending of humility, of self-compassion, of seeing the big picture of saying, okay, here she is. She is who she is. Am I going to get angry at her, humiliate her, reject her? Like I did when I was first a coach. That's what I did. It didn't work. And I didn't like myself. Or am I going to try some different strategies? I asked her how she helps administrators and those in leadership positions to understand the importance of racial identity development and addressing racism. Well, I would say there's two entry points that I can use and I listen for which one might be most relevant to them. So 
One of them would be someone's core values. And when I start working with an individual or a group of people, I always engage them in an activity that I've developed around their core values. And so I listen for possible connections between doing work to look at issues of equity or inequities and their core values. And then the other possible entry point is a school or an organization's stated mission or vision or values. And so I'm I'm sort of listening for where there could be connections made between who they want to be and who or what their district or organization purports to be or wants to be and the connections I can make um, with, with issues of equity and racism. I asked Elena if there was anything in particular she wanted white educators to know. We have all suffered under white supremacy. And we, by dismantling it, there's the potential for so much freedom and joy and liberation for everyone. Even as I'm saying that I'm thinking about ways in which I want to qualify that or say, you know, well, yes, we've all suffered, but some folks have, you know, suffered genocide. And I actually, I'm, as I've mentioned sort of indirectly on here a number of times, I am committed to seeing the intersection of identities and experiences and oppression. And I think there's so much power in seeing the intersections And so the intersection between white supremacy and patriarchy or misogyny, the intersection between those and capitalism, because it is in that intersection where we can more deeply appreciate how much we've all suffered and how much we have to gain by doing the hard work of learning and unlearning and sorting through all the emotions and being with the the pain, the guilt, the shame, all of the what comes up, there's there yes, there's justice, and, and we can be compelled by that. But I want to keep perhaps dangling in front of people the possibility of of individual freedom and liberation, even heterosexual, cisgendered wealthy white men in positions of power have suffered. And I have to remember that and their range of emotional expression and experiencing the world and what is possible for them has been so limited by patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy. And so I I, I want to just keep coming back to this. You know, we there's so much more freedom available for all of us. Yes, it's it's hard and we can do it. It's hard and it's not that hard because if we actually look at what the path entails, it's one foot in front of the other, one step, one step, you know, maybe a pause so that we can cry and take it all in. Maybe we have to lay down on the road at some points and just rest. And then we get up, we go, okay, look, oh, it's a little bit easier. In other words, the journey towards justice and healing and transformation is made up of skills. And there are lots of people who are sharing those skills. And we can do it. Dr. 
That was writer, teacher, coach, and podcaster Elena Aguilar. She's also the founder and president of Bright Morning Consulting based in Oakland, California. Jenna, I loved how Elena brought in intersectionality to nuance the idea of white women's tears and that white women can learn how to cry in a way that doesn't hijack a conversation. We get questions about that a lot. And it's important for white people to have emotions, especially about racism, because so often we're numb to it. But we can do it in a way that keeps the focus where it should be in any given conversation. This is where team leaders and school administrators need to be aware of the dynamics and make sure there are clear expectations and agreements set up before these moments happen. I also really appreciate what Elena said about more freedom for everyone. So often we believe and act out of the belief in scarcity, that if someone gets equity, it means someone else is losing it. And that is how racism wins. We fight each other instead of systems of inequity. That's it for this edition. Let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find us at teachingwhilewhite.org. And while you're there, you'll also find a wealth of resources that you can use and share. Teachingwhilewhite.org. Support for the podcast comes from the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. You can find out more about them at easted.org. Our podcast is produced by Stephen Smith. The theme music is by Henry Needham. I'm Elizabeth Denevi. And I'm Jenna Chandler-Ward. Thanks for listening.